Welcome to the Grace Hill Podcast, a weekly podcast of our Sunday messages driven by our pastor. Grace Hill exists to bring God's biblical truth to your everyday life. As we begin this week's message, we invite you to open your Bibles and capture what God has in store for you today. Good morning, Grace Hill. Good morning. It's great to be with you today. Um, You know, after wrapping up the last series, All In, Gosh, let's give God a hand clap of praise because the truth is, guys, the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. And we need to give Pastor Ryan a hard time because obviously he is not all in today or he would have been here, right? So when he comes back, make sure that you guys give him a hard time for not being all in. But no, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. Now, for those that do not know me yet, my name is Matthew Good. And me and my wife, Hillary, and our two boys have been coming to Grace Hill for a little over a month. All right. And I know what you're thinking. They let anybody just come up here and preach, right? Well, I mean, the answer is yes, they do. So you newcomers that are here, be prepared. Your week is coming. Your week is coming. Um, No, I I have to say that this is the world's, probably the world's most friendliest church. We have loved it here. We really have. Um, So for those that, you know, you're thinking, okay, who am I? What, how, how did I end up here? Well, we came from Pastor Ryan, uh, Ryan and Lauren's former church. That's where we came. We've ministered with them for the past 10 years. We've known them for the past 14 years. And I know that you guys have had your chance to kind of sniff them out, right, over this past year, right? And you know that they are good people. They say what they mean, and they do what they preach. And I got to say that you guys are so blessed to have them as your pastors. Now, after being here for a month and me sniffing all of you guys out, I have to say that Pastor Ryan and Lauren are blessed to have you all as their church family. And we are so happy and excited to be here as well. Now, a little bit about us. We live in Waxahachie. That's about a 40-minute drive with no traffic, all right? We work at Southwestern Assemblies of God University. There, I I teach different courses in uh, church technology, in Bible, in audio production, things like that. And we have two sons. We've got London, who is 11, and we have Cohen, who's going to be 10 this month, and he just got a brand new baby puppy yesterday, a little tiny chihuahua, and he doesn't really want to be at church this morning, but I don't really blame him. I don't. Now, um, they've really enjoyed getting to know all of your children, and there's a lot of kids their age at this church, so we're really grateful for that. Now, along with being a professor at SAGU, I'm also a doctor of ministry student. Um, I've got hopefully two more years left. I'm studying... um, leadership and creative communication right now. And speaking of doctorates, we have one of our own here. I don't know if, if, if Ronnie is here today, if she's working back there, but guess what? She successfully defended her doctoral dissertation this week, so now we can call her Dr. Ronnie Davis. Isn't that awesome? So when you see her back there, make sure that you, you know, really rub it in. Call her doctor, all right? Call her doctor. Congratulations, Ronnie. Now, I have the summers off from teaching, which is, I mean, all the teachers in the room probably say amen, right? But in a couple weeks, I know that I have to go back for fall in service. And we're all creatures of habit. I know that we are. So I know exactly what I'm going to do when I walk into our all-faculty meeting the first day. I'm going to go grab my cup of coffee, and I'm going to start walking up. I'm going to sit down in the front row. And I'm going to slowly lift my head, and I'm going to start to scan all the faces of all the faculty in the, mem- in, in, in the building. And I'm going to realize that, once again, I am the dummy in a room full of brains, all right? Because I have such admiration for my colleagues. I do. The years that they put together um, in order to study the art of teaching, it's just it's, it's fantastic. So I have this goal. I have this goal that... Years from now, I don't know, 10, 20 years from now, I will walk in to in-service. 
I'll grab my cup of coffee. But this time, I'll go to the back of the room where I'll be all chummy with all my friends and stuff, right? We'll be talking philosophy, probably in Latin or something like that, right? I'll have an ascot on, probably a pipe, right? But we don't smoke at our school, so it'll be fake. You know, I'm not going to have anything in there. But I'm going to pretend like I'm going to smoke it, though. I am. And I know. I'm really embellishing this. I am. Um, But in will walk some brand new new hire, all right? Some young guy. And he'll grab his cup of coffee. He'll walk to the front of the room. He'll sit down. He'll lift up his head. And he'll start to scan all the faces of all the faculty. And he will realize that he is the dummy in a room full of brains. And I'll feel like I have arrived, right? (laughs) And just as he is scanning to see who the wisest person in the room is, he'll meet my eyes, right? And then he'll think to himself, oh, never mind, there's another dummy right over there, right? And I'll be quickly humbled once again. But, oh gosh, I'm just, I'm very honored. I'm very excited to bring the word to you today, especially since we're in this new series, Authentic. You know, I don't take it lightly. Launching a new sermon series and a new book of the Bible at a new church as I stand in for the pastor who's gone. I mean, there is a lot of pressure, but I don't take that lightly. I believe that God has a word to speak to you today. So let's go ahead and get, get uh, let's pray and ask God to bless the message. Father God, we pray that we would have ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts and minds willing to be transformed as you speak to us through your word today. Amen, amen. Let me introduce this sermon, or this sermon series, Authentic. You know, me and my wife, we were taking a walk the other day, and we were talking about what authenticity truly means, what it truly means. And you see, we concluded that we live in a day and age by which authenticity is wrongly based upon a person's feelings instead of a person's purpose, right? We live in a day and age where authenticity is wrongly based upon a person's feelings instead of a person's purpose. That's backwards. That's backwards. If we solely lived our lives off of what feels good or what feels bad, understanding that that's not going to take into consideration long-term effects. For instance, I bet it feels fantastic to shoot up heroin. It probably does, right? But the long-term effects are going to be devastating. Devastating. You can't base authenticity off of feelings. Likewise, I bet you it feels devastating to detox from a drug addiction. But the long-term effects will feel fantastic to be drug-free. We cannot base authenticity upon our feeling, but on purpose. Authenticity is not based upon feeling, but purpose. And I'm here to tell you today that God has given you a purpose. And it's so much more than your feelings. A purpose for what, you may ask. Well, you know, my wife has many student workers who work for her, and she's kind of like this magnet. Uh, You know, uh, there's a bunch of students that just need to sort through all their personal issues. And she's such a fantastic sounding block Uh, to those needing to sort through those issues because she pulls no punches in giving biblical advice. And I love that about her. She's kind of like the horse whisperer, but for untamed college students, (laughs) right? Now, whenever a student comes to her with issues concerning authenticity, she very skillfully explains that their view of authenticity has been sorely misdirected, sorely misdirected. And it boils down to understanding that We all have the tendency of being two-faced. We have the tendency of being two-faced, meaning we shift between two different lives, that of our old self that's caught up in sin and that of our new self in Christ, saved and sanctified, saved and sanctified. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.17, he says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 
The new has come. Furthermore, he writes in Ephesians 4 to put off your old self. Put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life. It's corrupt through deceitful desires. And instead, put on the new self. Put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You see, when we view authenticity, we can either be authentic to our old life or authentic to our new life. Authentic to our old life of sin or authentic to our new life in Christ. But it can never be both at the same time. It can never be both at the same time because God did not create us to be authentic to the fruits of sin, but to be authentic to the fruits of the Spirit, right? God did not create us to be authentic to the fruits of sin, but to the fruits of the Spirit. So as we, as we hop into our series in the book of James, know that much like my wife, James is going to tell it like it is. He is going to tell it like it is. Sometimes we just need a prophetic voice to break through all the noise that we've allowed to influence us. We need that voice. James is one such voice. So as I preach today and as Pastor Ryan continues this series over the next few weeks, please, please, please hear me. Don't shoot the messenger, all right? Don't shoot the messenger. Instead, think about the tough lessons that are being thrown at you and allow them to activate spiritual growth in your life. Okay, can you guys do that? Can we all do that? Be authentic to God and not to the flesh. So let's go ahead and hop in. Let's hop into James. Now, I know some of you guys know the 80s well. And I remember in the 80s, there were t-shirts and posters that had this saying on it. It said this, life sucks and then you die, die right? Life sucks and then you die, right? Yeah. I always used to think, man, how rude is that, right? How rude is that? Now, I, as if life wasn't already hard enough, right? Here I am causing you to think about death as well. Um, but the truth is that just because we're Christians... It doesn't mean that we are immune to life's trials. Just because we're Christians doesn't mean that we're immune to life's trials. If you don't believe me, read any of the New Testament, any of it, any of it. Its writers are perfectly honest with us about the sufferings that occur because of our faith in Christ. No matter the type of trial that we may face, however, understand that there is a remedy for it. And I believe that we can find that in James. James chapter one gives us a great and also hard to swallow insight on how to handle life's trials. So everybody open up to James one. James one, verse one. We're gonna go through verse eight real quick. It says this. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, To the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. And it... um, Yeah, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Thanks, James. (laughs) Before we dissect the text of James, we need to better understand his reason for writing this letter. As a rule of thumb, I tell my Bible students this, whenever you study the Bible, it's always best to initially try to understand the then and there before the here and now. In other words, what was going on in the lives of the people that the letter was intended for originally that would warrant such a message for them to have. And so when James writes in verse 1, he says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered, there's a couple questions that need to be answered. Number one, who's James? Number two, who are the 12 tribes scattered? 
All right? So in order to answer these questions, we need to rewind a little bit. We need to rewind a little bit. Um, Scripture really doesn't tell us a whole lot of detail about the life of Jesus, the adolescent life of Jesus. We know him as a baby. There's a short story when he was 12 years old. But guess what? After Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph had children of their own. So the Bible tells us that that he had four brothers and more than one sister. Now, we also know that the scripture tells us that none of Jesus' siblings believed him to be the Messiah. That's incredible to think of. None of of Jesus' siblings believed him to, to be the Messiah, believed his claims, his own personal claims. Now, I believe that many of us can relate to that. I mean, how many of us have older brothers and sisters that want us to treat them like they are God, right? So, I mean, let's go ahead and let them slide a little bit, right? Well, Scripture gives, gives us the names of Jesus' brothers. They're all very common names. We've got little Joey Jr. That's one of them. We've got um, Judas, not to be confused with Judas Iscariot, but Judas, also known as Jude, the writer of the book of Jude. We've got Simon, not to be confused with Simon Peter. And then finally, we have James, not to be confused with the Apostle James, the brother of John. It's this James that is believed to have written this letter, this letter, this book that we're reading right now. Now, remember that I just informed you that none of Jesus' siblings believed him to be the Messiah. So I want you to think about what was going through James' mind when Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, initially paid him a visit. And you can see that story, 1 Corinthians 15, for those of you that are taking detailed notes. Think about that. The regret, the remorse, the sorrow, the embarrassment, maybe, that James was feeling. Talk about a come-to-Jesus meeting for real, right? Think about that. Literally. Do you think that Jesus told him, I told you so? You think so? I don't know. I don't know. But having now seen his brother, the risen Savior of the world, I'm sure that the trajectory of James's life changed from that point on. We know that it did, actually, because James becomes one of the leading uh, people in the early church. He becomes the pastor of the church of Jerusalem, and we also know that he died a martyr for his older brother, for his big brother, Jesus. He was killed in AD 62. Now, with all this information, historical records give us a glimpse into the writer's life and possibly a little bit into the life of the early church the troubles that the early church faced. So let's dig a little bit deeper and discover who these 12 tribes scattered are. In order to do so, we need to look at uh, the life of a man named Saul. Now, just as a tip to you guys that study your Bible, whenever you're studying any of the, the New Testament epistles, also get out the book of Acts. Get out the book of Acts. So the New Testament epistles are those letters that are written after the Gospels, after Acts, Get out the book of Acts, because the book of Acts is kind of like this bird's eye view. It talks about the movement of the early church, and a lot of the writers of these epistles are found in the book of Acts. So that's that's what we're going to do real quick. In Acts 7, in Acts 7, we find a man, a Christian man named Stephen. He's being stoned to death, being stoned to death because of his faith in Jesus. And because of that, Stephen becomes the very first Christian martyr. And if you read the story of the arrest and the death of Stephen, it so closely mirrors the death or the arrest and the death of, death of Jesus as well. So there's a, but there's an, a very important man who oversaw Stephen's stoning. He's a man that becomes a fantastic example for a changed life in Christ, and that man is Saul. Saul was a Pharisee. He was the son of a Pharisee, and the Pharisees were highly religious Jews. Their self-righteous adherence to the law gave them the belief that they were superior to other people. So superior, in fact, that we can recall them constantly being on Jesus' case, right, about Jesus' compassion overshadowing the law. It's those very Pharisees that have Jesus arrested and put to death as well. And it's Saul now who is overseeing the death of Stephen. 
But he doesn't stop there. He makes it his point, his very, his very uh, uh, purpose. He makes it his very purpose to destroy, arrest, put in prison, put to death every Christian that he can find. And when we read in Acts 8... Acts 8 talks about Christians being driven out of Jerusalem into Judea and into Samaria. Many of these because of Saul. So when James writes in verse 1 about the 12 tribes scattered, many scholars believe that these 12 tribes are those that are scattered under the hands of Saul. Now, Scripture also tells us what happens to Saul, right? Scripture tells us that on the way to Damascus to drive out more Christians and arrest them, the Lord gets a hold of him and radically changes him, right? And instead of persecuting Christians now, Saul rises up to the call of Christ and he becomes arguably the single most influential Christian in history. So think about Paul for a moment. He was a man who was formerly tied to this hypocritical religious worship of law, so much so that he persecuted others for not following his same convictions. Now along comes Jesus and radically saves him, despite Paul's own sinful lifestyle. Paul knew that he was a sinner. He knew that he did absolutely nothing to be saved. But Jesus did it anyways. Jesus did it anyways. He freely offered salvation to him. And because of this realization, Paul recognized that salvation comes through grace by faith in Jesus Christ alone. All we need to do is believe in Jesus, no matter what we have done in this life. And that's what he preached, salvation through faith alone and not by works. It's through faith. This is also what false teachers began to distort. You see, they saw this teaching as a way to have free grace, free grace and live whatever lifestyle they wished. They saw this as a chance to be authentic to the flesh and not to the spirit. Sadly, it's a very similar way we see a lot of people in the church living today. It flows directly in the face and the attention of Paul's teaching and the fruits of the Spirit that grow within a believer as a result of living a life for Christ, as Paul writes in Galatians 5. So here we are, finally in the book of James, and James writes for two reasons, to remind Christians of the trials and that uh, that Jesus already told us that we were going to face, every single one of us, but also to come against any of the false teachers who were perverting Paul's oral teachings on grace and works. In reality, the teachings of James and Paul, they complement each other. They're not at opposition. They're complementary. And I'm sure that Pastor Ryan's going to get into that in the next few weeks. So let's keep all of this that was shared in mind. We know who James is. We know that he, who his intended audience was. They're all the scattered people that are no longer in the, the confines of, 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 of a comfortable home. They're at places that they don't want to be. But what is the message, the theme of the message that James writes about? Well, as we read in James 1, there is a common theme or a big idea that becomes evident. That living authentically in Christ allows us to smile in the trial. Living authentically in Christ allows us to smile in the trial. Now, this is a very common theme throughout the entire Bible, We see people that turn tragedies into triumphs, right? They turn defeat into victory, and it's all because of God. I'm here to tell you today that you can have that same experience that James writes about. If you have faith in Christ, no trial that you face can defeat you unless you allow it to. No temptation that comes your way will overtake you unless you allow it. Because we have victory in Jesus. We have victory in Jesus, but we must choose to walk in that victory. And that means living authentically in Christ. Now, James begins with a a very controversial, shocking statement in verse 2. Let's read that. It says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. 
Consider it pure joy. I think it's fair to say that to many of us, that's a very hard verse to swallow. It is. I mean, is God playing an evil trick on us, right? Is he trying to pull one over on us? Are we fools to believe this? Have we once again driven up to Chick-fil-A and realized that it is a Sunday, right? That's horrible. No, James tells us to consider it pure joy when you face trials. When he says that, it's kind of like a child taking cough medicine, all right? And hear me out here. They have to trust mom that it will help them with their sickness, even though she's warned them that it may taste bad for a moment. All right? All right? We're like a doctor that needs to reset a broken bone. If you want it to heal properly, it's going to have to happen. But I'm going to warn you, it's going to hurt like the Dickens for a moment. Right? That's what James is saying here. God is warning us here that the trials that we go through will help us even though they may bring momentary displeasure. The trials that we go through will help us even though they may may bring momentary displeasure. So then, how are we to find joy in the midst of trial? How can we truly smile in the trial? Well, I believe that there are four action steps that we can all take that will allow us to do so. The very first action step is this. Living authentically in Christ means having a joyful attitude. I don't always like that one. I just want to let you know. But living authentically in Christ means having a joyful attitude. We need to have a joyful attitude. God, remember that God has been completely honest with us throughout scripture that life's just not always gonna be fantastic. Jesus warns us in John 16, verse 33, that in this world, you will have trouble. I'm so glad that he finishes that verse. He continues, he says, but I have overcome the world, right? He has overcome the world. We need to stand upon that. We find Paul preaching also in Acts 14. He says that we must go through much tribulation to enter the kingdom of God. He's not hiding that fact from us. He's being very honest with us. Just because we're a believer in Jesus does not mean that we're immune to pain. No, but understand this church. We are the children of a loving heavenly father who is our very present help in times of trouble. Amen? Now, James tells us here that we're going to face trials of all kinds, all kinds, and there's no getting around that. Uh, We can think of trials in a number of uh, ways. Uh, Imagine being falsely accused of a crime. That would be the worst, wouldn't it? You're brought before a court, much like Stephen and Jesus were, and you have the chance to prove your innocence, to prove your worth, and to gain back any lost respect. But let me tell you what, when you are in Christ Jesus, the sins of your past have already been paid for. They've already been taken care of. He's already stepped in to pay the price for your sins. Although in your own eyes and in your own power, you may feel worthless. Let me tell you something, church. In Christ Jesus, he's already shown you how much you're worth in him by laying down his life for you and fry. Hmm. So in the face of our accusers, in the face of our accusers, we're already made innocent in Christ Jesus. And because he is worthy and he lives in us, we too are worthy. Now, I don't know about you, but that gives me reason to smile. It does. That gives me reason to have joy in the midst of trial. Let me say this, if any of you are holding on to any past guilt or past shame, let it go. Let it go. Christ has already proved your worth in him and he's exonerated you from all your past charges. Let it go and smile. Let it go and smile. Now, when James writes about trials here, when we look up the original language in the Greek, he uses the Greek term parasmus, which means putting to the test or being tempted. Putting to the test or being tempted. In reality, it's a measure of how we will react to pressure. 
how we will react to pressure. And pressure, we know, comes in various forms. And it ebbs and it flows throughout our lives. Now, we've all had our fair share of pressuring tests in our lives, and we're even conditioned to those tests at a young age. Think about our children, our children in school, right? They have to take these academic tests that would prove that they've acquired certain age-appropriate knowledge and skills. And then as adults at work, we, a lot of us, we have to take certain professional uh, certification tests, okay? These types of tests prove that, that our knowledge and show that we are worthy to administer certain tasks, And after we've taken and passed these tests, we realize that the hard work put into it was well worth it. It was well worth it. We understand how far we've come because of that trial. And we also can now walk in the benefits we will now receive because of the work that we've put in. Now, this should give you reason to smile on the trial. It should. Likewise, when we think about sports psychologists, Sports psychologists, they train their clients to envision the victory. Envision the victory. We need to do the same thing. But guess what? We've got a leg up on them because we already know that Christ has already won the victory. We know the outcome. We know the outcome. We win because he won, right? Now, how many people know other people who are smilers? Smilers. You know, everywhere they go, they smile. Right? They walk into any situation with a positive attitude and diffuse the situation with their smile. They've already won the day the second that they wake up. They're smiling. They probably smile in their sleep, right? I mean, smiling works. Even WebMD has article after article on the benefits of having positive attitudes and how they help fight disease just with a positive attitude. You see, smiling works. But having a joyful attitude isn't the only thing to consider in being able to smile in the trial. This brings us to action step number two. Living authentically in Christ means yielding to God's plan. Yielding to God's plan. So looking at verse three in James, James writes this. He writes, for you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. You know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Now, what this truly boils down to is that trials reveal our level of determination. Are we determined to walk in our own power? Or are we determined to walk in a higher power, yielding our lives to a higher plan? Now, I'll never forget my first week of hell week in uh, high school football, and I know that some of you guys can relate to this. I arrived at 5 a.m. It was still dark outside, and just not knowing uh, what my body would be put through that week. Now, we've all seen it in the movies where the head coach, he turns to the assistant coach, right? And he says, let's see what they're made of, right? We know that. But that's exactly what happens with hell week. We see what the team is made of. We see, we see their weaknesses. We also are able to remedy those weaknesses so that, guess what? The team can now function the way that it was purposed to function. Now, if authenticity was based upon feeling alone, I would have quit after the first day. Same with all my teammates. We all would have, but guess what? We didn't. We didn't quit on ourselves because our coach didn't quit on us. And as the week went on, our perseverance grew. We became tenacious. And by the end of the week, our breaking point threshold seemed almost non-existent. And you guys need to realize this, that just like that old football coach, Jesus is there to walk with you through your trial. He's not going to quit on you. He's going to be your cheerleader. He's going to lead and guide you. He knows what your breaking point is, and he's going to give you all the help that you need to make it through. Hmm. So when trial is on the horizon, we need to smile. We need to smile just because we know that we're going to be stronger when we come out on the other side. And when we think about Job and the book of Job, I'm so glad we're not teaching on that. But when we think about him, he writes this, Job 23, verse 10. He says, but he knows the way I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth 
as gold. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. I want to be like that, guys. I want to be like that. Now, I know what you're thinking. Easier said than done, right? Smiling through your trial, right? I'm not saying that, you know, the second you smell a trial coming, you know, coming on that you should jump for joy, right? And throw a big party. I'm not saying that because the truth is that trials, the midst of trials, they're painful. They're not fun. They're, 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 they're devastating. They really are. They stink. But what we need to do, and I think this is wisdom here, in the midst of a trial, as soon as we start to see it coming, we need to pause. We need to recognize the trial for what it is, right? We need to realize who is truly in control, and then we need to surrender all to him, right? That's what we need to do. So this, this brings me to our action step number three. Number three. Living authentically in Christ means being patient with the process. Being patient with the process. Let's face it, we live in a microwave society. We're so impatient. We want everything right now, right? I hate it when I, you know, find something on Amazon, right? That's not Amazon Prime and I don't get it, you know, (laughs) extra early. You know, I want it early. My kids will never understand the pain of relying on dial-up internet, right? And likewise, I'll never understand the pain that my parents went through when they would have to walk to school five miles in the snow uphill barefoot, right? How did they do that? How did they do that? Man, I'll take dial-up internet all day for that. There's something to appreciate about being forced to patiently await for things, right? There's something to appreciate about being forced to patiently await for things. Things like barbecued brisket, right? Okay, I'm speaking some, la- some of you guys' language over here. Barbecued brisket. Imagine going to the store, throwing a bunch of money down on a brisket because they're not cheap, right? Bringing it home, firing up your smoker, making sure that the temperature is perfect, seasoning up your brisket, throwing it on, right? You throw it on the smoker. You know it's going to take hours and hours and hours to cook, but you become impatient. And after 30 minutes, you take it off. You cut into it. You take a big bite out of that thing, and you're disappointed, aren't you? Because you were not patient. Oh, Your lack of allowing perseverance to finish its work has made your brisket far from perfect and complete. So in this verse, James is showcasing the importance of surrendering our will to allow the trial to run its course. It needs to run its course because letting our perseverance finish its work is what brings us to maturity. Knowing this should allow you to smile in the trial. Now, in the book of James, it's evident that the people that he's writing to Uh, have fallen away. They haven't completely surrendered all of their wills to the Lord. Think about that. They're scattered all over the place. I'm sure that they're a little bit grumpy. They want to go back home, right? They're in a strange new land, hundreds of miles away from what they're used to. They are scattered. We find that many had forgotten how to pray. They'd even given their wills over to worldly desires, They'd forgotten who their true source of life was. The very one who is the answer to all of life's problems. And this led them to begin to have more faith in the world than in God. Church, maybe some of you feel scattered right now. Maybe you feel scattered right now. If so, I'm hoping that this next action step will help you out. The fourth and final action step is this. Living authentically in Christ means asking for God's help. Asking for God's help. Well, how do we ask for God's help? I mean, it's simple. It's very simple. We need to first realize that we don't have all the answers. We don't have all the answers, but we do know the person that does, and that's God. So James writes, starting in verse 5, 5 through 8, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. 
The person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. James pulls no punches, guys. He tells it like it is. So I I want you guys to think about this. If any of our young children come up to us and they ask for an answer to a problem that their little mind has not yet been developed enough to answer on their own, how many of us would point at them or we'd laugh at them, we'd call them an idiot for not knowing the answer? None of us. None of us would. Understand that when it comes to trials, our relationship with God is the same way. So when James says to ask for wisdom, if we lack wisdom, it's just simply not knowing what to do. We're telling God we don't know what to do. Really, guys, it's an act of worship. We're calling upon him to show up in the midst of our circumstances hmm, in order to answer our problems. And in my experience, God hasn't always shown up in the same manner, but he's always shown up, right? He's always shown up. We sang a bunch of songs about God being faithful. I'll tell you what, because God has been faithful to me, I am full of faith, right? I don't know if that's the truth with you as well, but because God has been faithful to me, I am full of faith. Now, what about those other verses, six through eight? What about those people? I mean, it's simple, guys. Those that, who choose not to call upon God, they'll continue to rely upon their own strength in a poor attempt to pull themselves out of very bad circumstances. I mean, verse seven even foreshadows something that James writes in chapter four that I'm sure Pastor Ryan's gonna talk about. It's a verse that we're very familiar with. It goes something like this. You have not because you ask not. You have not because you ask not. I don't think it's a coincidence that James continues to write throughout his book, throughout his letter, that we need to ask God for help. Now, let me tell you a very personal story as I begin to wrap things up. In January of 2010, my wife and I, we were trying to navigate life with having two babies in diapers, all right? Two babies in diapers. London was 20 months old at the time, our oldest, and then Cohen was five months old. My wife went in for a follow-up visit with her doctor regarding a scan that that she had done after undergoing a total thyroidectomy and radioactive iodine ablation for thyroid cancer. You see, the cancer word scared us. It scared us. Here we were with two little innocent little babies, two of them. And the thought of them not growing up with their mother, it frightened us. It scared us. It was something that was more than we could bear. But the doctor, you know what? He assured us. He assured us that if you were to pick a survivable cancer to have, Thyroid cancer is the one you need to choose because the treatment is like a silver bullet that's able to go in and kill all the leftover thyroid cancer cells that would remain in her body after surgery. So we were feeling good about this upcoming meeting. I was even at work at the time. As I worked as a teacher. I couldn't get time off of work. And so she shows up to this meeting with her doctor. The doctor has her sit down and he says, I don't know how to tell you this, but the treatment did not work. As a matter of fact, your cancer has spread to your brain and your spinal cord. For those of you that know anything about cancer, and I'm sure that you, you do, once the cancer is spread to other organs of your body, there's not a whole lot of stuff that you can do about it. There's not a whole lot. Now, you can imagine how distraught I was about upon hearing the devastating news from my wife. But something happened over the next few days, and I want you to hear this. You know, we acknowledged the possible outcome of, of, of our trial. We also knew the God that we served. He's capable of all things. So we simply just surrendered our will to him. We prayed for wisdom because we had no idea what to do. There was nothing we could do.
we asked for intercessions from our friends and our family. And we began to slowly feel a strange peace about everything. Now, it's a funny thing when you're staring death squarely in the eye and have Jesus, the hope of Jesus, the hope of eternity on your side, right? God's peace and comfort just begins to overwhelm you. So we were at peace at whatever outcome might be. Now, Hillary wanted to record some of the songs that she would sing to our boys as she would rock them to sleep. You see, she always wanted them to know how much she loved them. And just the, the, the sound of her voice. You know what I mean? She even wrote letters to me and my sons. She sealed them up for us to open sometime after her passing. I still keep them in our drawer, sealed and determined that they remain that way. <sighs> This was a very real scenario for our family. It was a very real trial. But as saddened as what, uh, as what she should have been, you know, with the occurrence of what was going on, you know what? She took stock of her life. She had come to the conclusion that God is still good, right? And she is still blessed. And she had a reason to smile. Now, a few more days later and a few more follow-up appointments later um, and tests later, she was called back by the doctor to uh, determine the prognosis of her cancer. And it was at that meeting that the doctor told her to have a seat, that he didn't know how he was going to tell her this, but there was no way to medically, to medically say how this happened. But... She was cancer-free. There was just no way to... The the cancer had completely disappeared. You know, to say that we were floored and overjoyed, uh, that's an understatement. Absolutely. Why God allowed things to play out the way that they did is something we may never know. We may never know. But we stand here today changed people for the better because of the bout with cancer We're closer to God. We're closer to each other. And we have such a fondness of heaven. And that's something I want to leave with you today. Begin to have a fondness for heaven. We tell our, we talk to our boys all the time about death and how we shouldn't be afraid because Jesus has a place for us. And one day we're going to be there together. And for this reason, we can have joy in the midst of the storm. We can have a reason to smile within the trial. But guess guess what? Our, Our story's not over there. Two years ago, her cancer came back. Two years ago, her cancer came back. But after going through that first situation, we weren't so distraught this time. It was more like we were annoyed, Right? We were annoyed. We were able to stare cancer right in the, in the eye and say, been there, done that. I'm not going to let you scare me anymore, right? Because Jesus is still on the throne, and in the end, we're going to be with him, right? And I'll tell you what, if the cancer bug ever comes back again, we're going to say the same thing. Been there, done that. We're not going to let you scare us into submission to you Because Jesus is still on the throne, and in the end, we're going to be with him. God is good even when our momentary circumstances state otherwise. So in our trials, asking for wisdom is a simple acknowledgement of not knowing what to do and seeking help from the one who does. So know that God will not only grant you the wisdom that you ask for in faith, but he's also there to take the controls when you are feeling too tired to carry on. God will carry you through if you allow him to do. So smile, so smile. So let's put all this together. How are we to smile in the trial? 
Number one, we need to have a joyful attitude. Number two, we need to yield to God's plan. Number three, we need to be patient with the process. Number four, we need to ask for God's help. Ask for God's help. Now, as I look across this room, I can imagine that many of you are going through various trials right now. Maybe it's financial difficulties. Maybe you have a prodigal son or daughter that you haven't seen for a long time. Perhaps you're facing a medical scare. Maybe you're grieving the death of a loved one. Regardless of the trial, first know that we serve a loving God who knows what's going on. He's there to walk with you through this. He's telling you through his word that the trial is only temporary and, you'll make, and it will make you stronger and more complete in the end. And you're going to have reason for joy. Because authentic living in Christ allows us to smile in the trial. So I'm going to end this with the same quote that I started with. Right? Life sucks and then you die. Life sucks and then you die. But my prayer is that this quote no longer is seen in a negative light with you. But that the thought of heaven would grow sweeter and sweeter every day. That we would find joy in the fact that no matter what happens to us today, we have heaven waiting for us. So let me pray with you, all right? Let me pray with you. Dear Jesus, you see the vast circumstances in this room, and I pray that you would be the great God of comfort that you are and meet people in the midst of their pain. I also pray that we would not focus on the temporary, but on the eternal. May we learn from the trials that we face and in the end be able to repeat the words of Job, but he knows the way I take when he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. It's in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Grace Hill is always about knowing God and growing in God, and we want to hear from you. If you have a prayer request or a question, you can email us at info at gracehill.cc.